0: Many of you wanted to play the harmonica when you were a kid. I always did. I always thought that was fun. Oh, that's great. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Tonight, uh, for teens, for, since you guys have just been coming up here, we've been on a series going through the different stages of the Bible. And just, uh, we're not going through each chapter, we're just giving some overarching things within those stages to help you navigate the Word of God uh, so that we're, uh, so we're getting more out of our teaching of the Word of God. Tonight, uh, we find ourselves in the years 1200 to 1000 B.C. Say, okay, that doesn't mean much to me. Let me give you a feel for what was going on around the world during that time. 1184 B.C., uh, Troy is captured by Greece. All right, so the whole, uh, the whole uh, hidden, hidden uh, people inside the, the giant horse there. What's that called? Thank you. Ugh. All right. All right. We have uh, 1140, the Second Babylonian Empire. It's in its infant stages, and we're going to see how that grows uh, to where that will later come up in the next two stages. Uh, 1100. Uh, iron is first used in Austria and uh, starts the Iron Age in Europe, spreads across Europe. You say, why are you telling me? Just to give you a feel for what's going on around the rest of the world. In 1090, this actually does play into several things you'll read in this, this area of the Bible, especially in First and Second Kings. Uh, it's the end of the Ramses uh, dynasty in Egypt. Nubia gains independence. That's the kingdom of Cush. Uh, Ethiopia area. Uh, Egypt will now go through a very long period of turmoil, which allows David to establish his kingdom, which allows Solomon to have peace and to gain wealth from Egypt. And then once they finally get back on their feet, how God uses them to uh, be a snare to, uh, to Israel when they're in sin. So all of those things are important. So that's what's going on around this time frame. Uh, two weeks ago, we found ourselves at the end of the book of Judges, the phrase, the last verse, in, the, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. All right, that's the line, to, that's the key to that entire book, uh, is the last verse. We are in the dispensation, if you remember from that, we're in the dispensation of the law, the law given to Moses. We are under the Abrahamic the Mosaic, and the uh, Palestinian covenants at this time as well. We went through those in the first week. Uh, God had uh, the people of Israel, they were slaves, led by Moses out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. Here, Israel's formed into a nation. They're given laws. They're given a language. They're uh, they're given a calendar, dietary restrictions, religious sacrifices, guidance for even how to uh, harvest their crops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The nation agrees to be God's people and to follow His law. And the covenant of the law is given there. The dispensation of that law begins as well. And they were to be a priesthood to the rest of the world. Then. They wander through the wilderness for 40 years after some disobedience and under Joshua. The nation finally is led into the promised land where they conquered portions of the land. Then each tribe was given their portion of that and they were to complete the rest of the conquest. Most, if not all, of the tribes failed at this. They did not completely take their land, which left them then inside the country of Israel that we see today and and part over into Jordan. That's all the land given to them. They did not conquer that, so that left them with pagan nations within their nations. And those became a snare, a spiritual snare to Israel for the rest of their time. And that snare is, is what we saw all through the book of Judges that Brother Rick brought to us two weeks ago. The nation was supposed to be a theocracy, and as the different tribes, they had uh, priestly cities that God had distributed evenly throughout the nation to where the priests would, would share the word of God with them. They were to follow the law. The priests and the Levites were to instruct them in the word of God. They were to also take their sacrifices. The whole societal, this is important, the whole societal structure was based on this premise. Priests were to instruct and to take sacrifices and offerings. The people following those teachings were then supposed to give the sacrifices and the offerings with that. When the people did not follow the Lord and followed after the pagan gods of the surrounding nations, what happens? The whole system falls apart. The tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, they're starving because nobody's doing what they're supposed to do. So they find ways to survive. Therefore, they're not teaching the word of God, and they're not doing the things they're supposed to do. You see, this is a downward spiral that starts to happen in this nation with just a few high spots where godly judges would step up to lead the nation. However, after each judge, the people we see, even after bringing them back, they fall back following the pagan gods over and over again, and they're given over to their enemies. And each time, they're given over to their enemies for an increasing amount of time. This is the scene that begins this next stage of the Bible. It's called the United Kingdom. Right, that's the term we're giving it, the United Kingdom. Now, what does this stage include? So if you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel, this, this part uses First and 2 Samuel, for, for, the very first parts of 1 Kings, all of 1 Chronicles, and the first part of 1 Chronicles, and a good portion of the book of Psalms. Now, note, when you're going through the Word of God, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles cover the exact same time frame, all right? So if you're reading, you get to the book of 1 Chronicles for the first time you've ever read it, and you've already read 1 and 2 Samuel, you're like, wait a minute, I've I've heard this before. This is just a little bit different. Well, that's because they're covering the same information. The same thing then when you get to 1 and 2 Kings, it covers, uh, 2 Chronicles is covering that material. Now, what's the difference there? Well, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 King, those are written pre-captivity. Those are while they're still a nation, all right? And then 1 and 2 Chronicles, they're either written during the captivity or post-captivity. Nobody knows for sure, but we know it was during that time. So they're coming from a little different angle uh, in 1 and 2 Chronicles. They're, giving you, uh, they're filling in some details there that we didn't see in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 uh, Samuel. Now, there are four main players in what we're going to see tonight. The four main players. The first is the prophet Samuel. Now, many people will call him the last judge of Israel. I don't care if you want to call him that or if you don't. That's up to you. Some people do. Some people don't don't consider him that. The second person is the first king of Israel. His name is King Saul, all right? And then the second king of Israel, King David, all right? And the third king of Israel called King, all right, so there's there's our four people. Now, King Solomon is also whose son? David, good, all right, great. All right, so we have Samuel, Saul, David, and Solomon. We're not going to talk much about Solomon tonight, we just won't have time. But this, for me, this portion of scripture is the most fun of the entire Bible to read. The narratives here, they're just incredible accounts from the Word of God, and you can follow along. They really teach us how people behave in life and what God is like and what he is looking for in other people's life. You can look at the book of 1 Samuel, and it's sort of a a transition book. You know how when you're in the New Testament and you're in the book of Acts and that is a transition book? Well, the same thing is in 1 Samuel. It transitions from this theocracy to a monarchy, all right? And we're going to see how that works tonight. If you look in your, in your 1 Samuel, chapters 1 through 7, we see the, the final demise of this theocracy where God is in control. Now, this is not a commentary against God This is a commentary against sinful man not following God. And the book book opens with a picture of the state of the priesthood at the time. Chapters 1 and 2 were introduced to Hannah. Uh, Hannah comes to the tabernacle of the congregation. It's not the temple yet. It's not in Jerusalem yet. It's in a city called Shiloh. It's still the, the tabernacle of co- the congregation that they, that they drug all around the, the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. I don't know if they replaced things, if God didn't allow them to wear out. I don't know. If not, it's probably looking a little rough, but who knows? But uh, we're introduced to this, the high priest. His name is Eli. Now, she was a barren woman, and she comes in, and shes you've heard many Mother's Day sermons here, and she was praying for God to give her a son, and if he did, she dedicated him to the service of the Lord. God grants that wish, and she does exactly that. When he is weaned as a child, she brings him to the temple and says, all right, Eli, here you go. And once a year, she would come, and she would bring new clothes for her son. That's mind-boggling to any parent that's in this room right now. What in the world? But nonetheless, that's what she does. But we're told in this that Eli's sons had made the priesthood and the sacrifices undesirable to the people. Turn to chapter 2. Verse 12 says in that verse, talking of his sons, they were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord, yet they're priests of the nation. Drop down to verse 17. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. And what did its cause? For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. That's not good. Hophni and Phineas are their names. And it tells us later on, they were sleeping with ladies that were hanging out at the tabernacle. And they were taking items from the offerings and the sacrifices that they were not supposed to take. Yet... Eli, the spiritual leader of the tabernacle and really of the nation, he did nothing about it. He's a very old man at this point. Apparently, he's, he's quite uh, heavy and he can barely see. Verse, th- t- verse 3 starts off, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 3 starts off by playing off of this, this elderly man and it says that his, his eyesight was dim. And it plays off this fact by saying his eyesight was dim, and with that, he allowed the lamp of God in the temple to go out. So it wasn't just his eyesight, but the lamp of God, this light of God's word, the representation there was going out in the nation. There was a failure in the priesthood. There was a failure in him as a parent. And by, by chapter four, the weakened nation finally loses in battle. And it results in something that's just, just mind-boggling and unbelievable to them. The Ark of the Covenant, the representation of God with them, it's stolen during this battle. It's taken away. And with this, uh, Eli's family, they die or they or They're killed. The Lord uses another picture in this of uh, and he often you see through these uses, people's lives sort of as an overarching condition of what's going on in the nation. Eli's eyesight, as I mentioned, with the lamp going out. Now we see, at the end of chapter four, at the end of this battle, Phineas' wife hears that the ark was taken and that her husband was killed in battle. She's pregnant. She goes into labor, and she has a child, and she names him Ichabod, meaning the glory is departed. That's not just of the child, that is of the nation. Don't name your child that, all right? Very goodness. So, this is the condition of the nation of Israel. At the end of the judges, and now at the end of this situation, the high priest has died. Uh, his sons have been killed in battle. The Ark of the Covenant has been taken away. Yes, the glory has departed from the nation of Israel. In chapter 5, I'm not going to go through chapter 5. That is a wonderful, hilarious chapter to read if, you're, if your mind's a little messed up like mine. And... It's God's going to, the whole chapter shows basically this, you do not mess with God, all right? And they get the Ark of the Covenant back. It is at this point that we see the rise of Samuel, this little boy, Hannah's child, he's now now an an adult, and now you see the rise of Samuel as the new prophet in the land. Not just priest, he is the prophet in the land. And it is an important thing to note as you go through the Old Testament. Anytime a prophet shows up in the New Testament, it's typically not good news, all right? It is typically showing that there is a spiritual failure among God's people, and he sends this prophet to get their attention. Just go through any prophet. We'll see Nathan in just a little bit in in 2 Samuel. You have Elijah and Elisha that come on the scene, all of the minor prophets and major prophets. Each of them we see this spiritual failure that's going on, and God is trying to wake them up. So Samuel has the people, as you continue reading, and I am paraphrasing a lot of this because we got a lot to go through tonight, and this united kingdom that's about to happen, Samuel has the people turning back to the Lord, He's doing some good things, and and, and they're turning to the Lord, but then something happens. A very similar thing that happened with Eli. Turn to chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass, we're looking through all of Samuel's life now, and it came to pass when Samuel was old, so we're just eight chapters and now he's old. So his whole life is spanned in those chapters. That he made his sons judges over Israel. Now read on a little later. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after filthy lucre and took bribes and perverted judgments. Just like Eli's sons, Samuel's boys caused the people to stop following the Lord. And in verse five, if you're one for underlining things in your Bible, verse five is a pivotal verse for the nation of Israel and really for the, for the trajectory of their country. The end of that verse says, the people come to Samuel and they say, now make us a king to judge us. How? Like all the nations. What's Israel supposed to be? they're God's people a called out group of people to be a priesthood to the rest of the world they were supposed to they were not supposed to be like any other people they were supposed to point people to God and now they're saying they're fed up and they say make us a king to judge us like all the nations they were supposed to be different But now they've gone through this time of judges. There's now 400 years of chaos back and forth. And the judges, uh, they would look around and they would see, we don't want this anymore. Now, this did did not take the Lord by surprise. So when we see this, like, oh my goodness, what does the Lord do here? No, it did not take him by surprise. In fact, as we, uh, I can show you two reasons why. If you go to Genesis chapter 49, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, we have Jacob as an old, old man about ready to die. And he brings all 12 of his sons before him and he tells them, he gives some prophecies about what's going to become of their lives. And he gets Judah in front of him. And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. The scepter. Who has a scepter? Yeah, a king. All right? And then when the Lord's giving the law to Moses, he gives instructions on who could be king, who couldn't be king, and what restrictions were supposed to be placed on kings. God knew this was going to happen. He had set this up ahead of time. So the, this didn't take the Lord by surprise. The problem, though, here is, comes with how they did it. They wanted to be like the world. Now, that's a problem. Anytime Christians, followers of God, want to be like the world and follow their example, we're, we're treading on thin ice there. And that's what happens here. So the Lord gives them exactly what they wanted. That sound familiar? I think it does in, in our world as well today, does it not? The, world, the Lord gave them exactly what they wanted, and he gave them the tallest guy that, that was there. He was this rugged-looking guy. His name was King Saul, a man with deep insecurities, <laughs> a man with little faith, a man that feared man more than he feared God. And this will rise up again again and again. And as, you, as you're reading through 1 Samuel, I want you to keep in mind two things. There are a couple things for us to know as we're reading. Now, like I said, this is to help us to keep our eye on the Word of God and to know what we're reading ahead of time. The first thing to note in the Old Testament, and we see it specifically here, is that the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a time. As God desired, the Holy Spirit would come upon a person. The Holy Spirit did not indwell a person for their entire life. We as Christians, when we accepted Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came upon us. He indwells us for the rest of our life. There's nothing you can do to remove the Holy Spirit from your life. And that's a wonderful thing because that is the earnest of our, of, our accept, of our acceptation of God. We will go to the Lord. We know that. He is there, he comforts us, he convicts us on all the other things that the Holy Spirit does. And so, but we don't see that in the Old Testament, in fact, we see the opposite. The second thing we need to note is, as you're reading through this, it's, uh, we see God's sovereign hand moving throughout the book, that his, what he needs to have accomplished will be accomplished. Now, the remainder of the book, uh, starts to, we start to see two things. We start to see the tragedy of Saul, and we also start to see the training of David. So when you think of uh, the, the book of 1 Samuel, see the first half as, as Samuel, and then see the tragedy of Saul and the training of David. Saul, he, was a victor, he had some victories for Israel at the beginning, the people were behind him, even though they were warned by Samuel, like, hey, you know what happens when you have a king? He's going to take the best of the, land, of the, of the people. They're going to be soldiers. He's going to take a portion of your food because he's got to feed them, and he's got to have his, you know, his royal palace and, and whatever that would mean at that, at that time. So he's, he's warned them, but yet they're, they're still happy with him at this point. Then Saul's insecurities start to get the best of him. Turn to chapter 13. Remember I said he feared man more than he feared God? Well, that's what we see in chapter 13. They're ready to go to battle, and before they go to battle, they're waiting for Samuel to get there, the prophet Samuel, and he's going to have a sacrifice for them, and he's going to pray for them before they go out. But Samuel lingers. I don't know why. Says he's an old man by that point. Who knows? But he lingers for seven days. And Saul can't handle it anymore. And he steps into the role of Samuel. He's the king. He is not the priest. But he steps into the role of Samuel. And in verses 11 and 12, it says there, Samuel speaking to him, he says, What hast thou done? And Saul said, here we go, because I saw that the people were scattered from me, go down a little farther, looks at what he says, I forced myself, (laughs) I forced myself to do it. I didn't want to, but I forced myself to do it. No, (laughs) you couldn't handle it. It's like the conversation when you have and there's that awkward silence. You just can't handle it anymore. And you spout it out. I'm just telling a secret that every parent uses against their teens, right? You let that silence just hang there until they finally can't handle it. And the conviction sets in and they just spill the beans, right? That's what we see here with with Saul. He, uh, He goes against the Lord. And then in verse 13 and 14 says, Thou hast done foolishly. Here's a turning point. Going on, for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. You ever heard that phrase before? Sure. Later, chapter 15, we go to chapter 15, Saul doesn't listen to the Lord again. This time, he didn't do what was instructed. God had said very specifically, destroy all of this. And he doesn't. He keeps some of the possessions for himself. He keeps the king alive of that land. But but he kept some of these things. And it is here that we see a major principle in the word of God. This is another one to underline. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. And Samuel said, so Samuel comes onto the scene. He sees he hasn't done, Saul hasn't done what he's supposed to do. And S- Saul makes up these excuses that uh, blaming it on the people and on and on it goes. And, he's, and Samuel said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Rhetorical question. And then he responds, I'll give you the answer. Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God never changes. He is immutable. And this principle never changes of the Lord. You can pay your penance. You can sacrifice your belongings. But if there is no obedience to the Lord, it is rebellion, it shows a lack of love, it shows a lack of respect, it shows a lack of reverence to the Lord. Yes, we do have to sacrifice. He calls us to do those things. But he prefers utmost that we will be obedient to him. Well, this is the point that David enters the scene. The Lord sent Samuel. He's very old at this point. He sends Samuel to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house. Uh, Brother Rick mentioned how we get to Jesse from Boaz down to Jesse. Uh, He goes to Jesse's house to anoint uh, one of his eight sons to be the next king of Israel. Jesse doesn't know that's why he's there, but he, he brings his sons in front of the prophet, except David. David's out taking care of the sheep. We know this account. And here we have another great principle from the word of God. 1 Samuel chapter chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance, his appearance, or on the height of his stature. Because David had a lot of, you know, brothers that were strong and, and, and were probably good looking guys. Because I have refused him. Now here's the part. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Amen to that? Are we not glad? I'm glad, <laughs> for sure. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Amen. That principle does not change. It is the same today. When he tells us later that not many are chosen of the, of the, the strength of the world, but uh, those that will bring God glory. Some of us, is when you know, the Lord uses us, people look at us and go, well, it has to be the Lord. And that's great. That's a wonderful thing. Don't laugh too much, man. Come on. <laughs> that's good. So David is anointed by Samuel as a young teenager. In verse 13, look at this. This is, this is interesting. Verse 13, the end of that chapter, it says, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Next chapter, the next verse. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So we see this the hand being pulled off Saul and being placed on King David. From this point on, the game is afoot. Uh, we'll just run through these what happens here, starting in chapter 17. Uh, this is the famous chapter, this is David and Goliath. David, it, with faith, this, this teenage boy, he goes and he kills Goliath and he, and he uh, chops off Goliath's head and he carries that head and his sword with him. That's the coolest stuff ever. Every boy should hear about that almost every day of their life. And he, and he's, uh, he goes up to King Saul and this puts him on King Saul's radar. Now remember, King Saul does not know Samuel has anointed David. That's important. He's going to figure it out, but he doesn't know that. So King Saul invites David to work at the palace. He loves how he plays music. He sees this young man as someone that's going to be a great warrior. Instantly, David becomes uh, knit uh, to the heart of Jonathan, and uh, that's King Saul's son. They become best friends. David starts to win battles for King Saul, but with that, he is also starting to win the hearts of the people. Saul then, starting to see this, he tried the old adage, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, considering David as an enemy. So he has David marry his daughter. That'll keep him close, right? I'll keep him under my thumb that way. I think there's a lot of father-in-laws that have thought that in life doesn't work too well. Finally, Saul's insecurity gets the best of him. And he realized David was the man to be the king after him. And so he attempts multiple times to have David killed. And from chapters 21 through 30, that's a long time, isn't it? Ten years go on. From chapters 21 through 30, we see David running for his life from King Saul. Now, it's in this time that we see a consistent principle throughout the Bible. What is that? God's hand of preparation on the life of a leader. David at this point was not prepared to be the leader of a nation. He was a great warrior, and he was a man after God's own heart. But he needed some seasoning. He needed some time. It is an okay thing to not realize your dreams right away. The things, the visions that maybe God has given you for your life. Because typically, right when that comes in your mind and in your heart, you can't handle it yet. And God used David's time in this wilderness that he is wandering around for these 10 years, running for his life from Saul to build character in his life. In this, David realized what his weaknesses were. He had some failures during this time, and he got to realize what those weaknesses were. God used this time to draw loyal men to him that he did not have prior to that, the mighty men of David. God used this time to show Israel David's respect for God's anointed. He has two chances in these chapters to to kill kill King Saul, and he will not lift his hand against God's anointed. It taught his own soldiers something. And it taught Israel who who will eventually make him king of what kind of man he was. And God used this time to help David's personal faith in the Lord. We can see this all through the book of Psalms as he's writing these Psalms and how he's pouring out his heart to the Lord and how he pours out his faith to the Lord as well. So when you look at the first half of 1 Samuel, don't look at it as just a survival race for David, rather as a time of training, a time of preparation. We see this over and over through the word of God. You see this in Abraham, uh, you see it in Jacob, you see it in Joseph, and you definitely see it in the life of Moses. So the question, as we look at these things, is we should ask ourselves, what is God preparing me for? What is God preparing you for as as a teenager or a college student here today? What is God preparing for you right now? And with that means you need to look at your daily situation a little bit differently. David could have looked at those daily circumstances and said, what in the world is going on? We're going to trust it in the Lord, that God was going to use the things for his good. And David did that. Chapter 31, King Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. And it's finally David's time. There is more written about David or by David in the Bible than any other person outside of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ it's important that we learn about David. God puts many chapters, you go through the book of Genesis, chapter, 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 and then you've got, well, I think it's 15 chapters out of there on Joseph. There's some things we should learn when we see how God uses that. So, now we're in 2 Samuel. Yeah, I got nine minutes. All right, how's that gonna go? All right? And I'm, <laughs> I'm less than halfway through my notes. All right, so that's good. Uh, Second Samuel I love, um, it's a chronicle of David becoming king and his kingdom. He's been running around for 10 years, and uh, we see his ascension to the throne. Uh, When you read, he is a man after God's own heart. God says that about him. So as you read, look at his actions. Look at his reactions. Look at his attitudes toward things. And see, is that why God calls him this? That's an important thing as you read through there. Some things to realize in 2 Samuel. First is that he doesn't become king of the nation right away. In fact, there's seven and a half years that he is only a portion of the country following him while uh, Saul's son is is trying to be king as well. Uh, Many people call this the patient years. But David was patient to let things fall into place. See, King Saul's uncle... Or his general Abner uh, didn't want to lose power. As you're reading through this, it's a lot of political things going on, and Abner didn't want to lose power. So he sets up Saul's son Ishbosheth to be king. That's a good name. You should name your next child that, all right? This resulted in Judah and Benjamin following after David, and the rest of them following after Ishbosheth. So now, for seven and a half years, there's a civil war going on in Israel. Did you know there was a civil war in Israel? Yeah, this was the time. And David's generals, which are his cousins, Joash is the, the main guy there, and Abner, they're just putting their people against each other all the time. You see some different leadership qualities that are going on here. You see ish he's a very weak person, but he's well-connected. That's a bad leader to have. You've got Abner, he's a strong guy, but he's selfish and he's manipulative. That's a bad leader to have as well. And then we have David, this called anointed man that's been equipped by God. He's both a shepherd and a spiritual leader. That's who they needed. And the people started to see this. By chapter three of 2 Samuel, Abner is seeing the writing on the wall and he decides uh, to use some awkward situation with Ishbosheth to shift his loyalties to David. And he basically tells David, I'm going to bring the rest of the country, and they're going to follow, they're going to follow me, is what, what, he's, what he gets around to. Uh, David makes peace with the man, and as he's leaving, Joash pulls him aside. You can read the details of why that all happened, and he kills him, all right? Joab, we find out, is a, a man very simil, similar to Abner. He's a great warrior, extremely loyal to David, But typically, it was for what he needed for his own success. Um, Hebrews 6.12 is an interesting verse, I think. They, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them that through faith and patience inherit the promises. David was faithful and patient. And we see in this book, he inherits the promises. In chapter five, we finally see the full fulfillment uh, of the anointing uh, that was given back in 1 Samuel. He finally is, the, is over the entire nation. And he starts to move quickly. He, uh, he moves the, they conquer Jerusalem and he makes the capital city Jerusalem. It's a city that's outside of, of Judah and Benjamin and is right between all the other tribes. It was a brilliant political move. It's, it's perfect. The border is right there. It's still part on his border uh, of his tribes. But it's not owned by any. He makes some political alliances. He, he makes some marriages that are political alliances. Uh, he defeats the Philistines. He retakes the land that was lost under King Saul. He moves, moves the Ark of the Covenant now up to Jerusalem. And uh, God gives him his rightful throne over the nation. And we see here now he has, he's moved the Ark of the Covenant. Now it's the political center of the country and the spiritual center of the country. So that's what's going on here. Uh, there's, I'll, I'll skip that. Second Samuel chapter 7. Here now we reach another pivotal spot in the Bible. Not just in this book. This is a pivotal spot in the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7. In verse 12, so David is wanting to build a, tabern- or a temple now for the Lord, and the Lord says no, but he comes back and says this, and when, the day- when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, speaking to David, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Before thee, thy throne shall be established forever. Or according to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. This pivotal spot is now the Davidic covenant. Nothing David did, all what God did. And there is a turning point here. This is God's response to David. David's family now will be forever king over Israel. The final fulfillment of this will come with the final king, Jesus Christ. We have Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah as we follow this lineage, and now David. And in Luke 2, you can follow the lineage of Luke 2, and it goes and it follows that pathway all the way to Jesus Christ. That will be the king, the final king. Genesis 3.15, the Savior would be a man, not an angel. Genesis 12.3, the Savior would be a Jew to bless the whole world. Genesis 49.10, the Savior would be of the tribe of Judah, it tells us. And now, in 2 Samuel 7, the Savior would be through the lineage of King David. Beautiful. And I think we're going to leave it at that tonight. We're not going to turn the point where it goes south, all right? We'll leave it. We'll leave it on a high note tonight. Let me uh, let me close with one thing. In, in the chapters that we read at the end, David has some poetry there, and the poetry uh, is very similar to one of his uh, one of his. Psalms that he writ in the, writ, wrote in the book of Psalms. In the Bible, it tells us that God is no respecter of persons. I've shared this before. God is no respecter of persons. And and it tells us that, you know, when a person has sinned, it will be, it will be visited upon the third and the fourth generation. Not that the sin of that, that child will be held accountable for that sin, but because of the influence of that person, it will be felt on the thir- up to the third and fourth generation. We see that in alcoholism. We see that in drug abuse. We see that in, in different things of that nature uh, as an extreme. Even the minor things that we do, we see that visited upon. I would say that also works in the opposite way as well. Because as we look through the word of God, as we consider David, it tells us over and over and over, for David's sake, for David's sake, this happened. When we get to Hezekiah, uh, a certain thing doesn't happen because for David's sake. The destruction of the Jerusalem did not happen during that time. God saved Judah from wars for 300 years after David's death for David's sake. And if God is no respecter of persons, and he blessed David for his faith and for his godly living, I would think that the same is available to all of us. If he's no respecter of persons, that means that must be available for me as well. Proverbs 13, says, a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. Now, I will not, my daughter's here tonight, I will not be leaving a large inheritance of great wealth. Uh, If I could, it's it's temporary in the first place. I would much rather leave the heritage, a godly heritage, a path of righteousness for the next generation to take. David was after God's heart. He believed and he worshiped God. Even through the 10 years of wilderness, God looked at him and he saw this is a separated life. This is a man that will serve me. I ask you, can you honestly say that you're trusting God's plan? For my servant David's sake, will that be said of your family? Will that be said of you by your family? I have a picture of my grandfather in my office. And I have his Bible. Uh, my sister was kind enough to make a case for it that, so it doesn't fade. And uh, I wonder how many blessings in my life are for Ralph Thomas' sake, for Coy and Donna Wells' sake. And I can guarantee you, as you and I are sitting here today, we want the same our hearts desire for me, for Keith and Leanne's sake, that my family, the ministries of Friendship Baptist Church are blessed in the years ahead. That's what we desire. May we follow after David's example. But I can tell you this, it does not just turn on like a light switch. This is something that is a marathon and it is a constant climb in our life. Brother Preston used to tell us all the time, it is not a sprint, it is a marathon. How true that is. Some of you have been serving the Lord for decades. Some of you are just starting out. Continue, continue. And it might be said for your sake, the blessings have lasted on your children as well. It's a choice that we make. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for your word as we look at David and Saul and Samuel and these examples that they have. And we just uh, ask you to work in our hearts, we'd apply these principles that we would actually dive into your word, that we would read the chapters that we've just skimmed over the principles of today. Put it in our hearts that we would follow what we read it be said for, for our sake nothing that we are nothing that out of boast or uh, out of pride but that there would be a blessing for how you've worked in our life we thank you for the heritage you've given us and guide us now through this time in Jesus name amen